0: Well, we're glad you're here this morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be with you. If you're new with us or you've been here before, stick around after the service. We'd love to just be able to say hi to you before you leave and get to know you a little bit better. This morning, we are going to be in Mark chapter 8. If you don't know, we're moving through the gospel of Mark section by section, text by text. And this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles, that'll be page 844. Also, on the inside of your bulletin, the inside left-hand side, is an outline so that you could follow along with the points that we'll be covering this morning. And I titled this message, Fickle Fans or Faithful Followers. Now, I am... A Laker fan. Do I have any support out there? All right. Woo! None on this side. Sacramento? Oh, yeah, that's right. We could have a war right here in church. <laughs> I am a Laker fan. But I, I've had the privilege, not that I could afford it, but the place I used to work, the owner had some incredible seats. So I, I had a chance a couple of times to attend some fascinating Laker games, including a playoff game. That is a whole nother thing. But You see it on TV, but you also really experience it when you're there with the crowd. There is something about fans, and especially Laker fans. They are fickle. They are fickle. From one minute to the next, we love you! You do you know what I'm saying? I mean, if the team is not playing up to this level that they have set for them, there are death threats made from the stand. And you just see this whole thing and, and you have to cock your head back and forth. But that's in to some degree that's how fans are in every area. In fact, I just made a few observations about fans. Fans and this isn't true all the time, but it's true most of the time. Fans bail when things aren't fun anymore. They bail. They are out of there. If you're not making me happy, I'm not going to be your fan. Fans, as I've said, turn from lovers to haters and back to lovers and then back to haters in a moment's notice depending on how well the team is performing. Fans' relationships with other fans is typically very superficial. Superficial. This is something else that you get to experience when you're actually in the stands. When the Lakers or whatever team it is are playing well, all of a sudden, total strangers are high-fiving and embracing each other, (laughs) spilling their beer on one another and saying, it's okay, man, it's okay, I love you. (laughs) Very superficial because these same two people might kill each other on the freeway if one cut off the other. The only relationship they have is just the fact that they both like the Lakers or that the Lakers are performing well. Fans live vicariously through the team that they adore. What that means is, is that they'll say things like this. I have said things like this. We won. We crushed the competition. You, you, you crushed the competition? I didn't see an ounce of sweat come off of your body. Right? So they, they, they don't actually participate in the struggle that it took to perform at the level that those men were performing at, they're just vicariously living through them, trying to experience some of that. Fans' adoration fizzles over time. You notice this with maybe American Idol. Every year, now I don't know how many seasons this thing has been, but every year there's a new fan base and all these screaming, crazy little girls and boys who are in love with this other person who can sing Forget them usually in the, by the next year and now it's the new American Idol and, and their adoration is directed towards them. It, it fizzles. It goes away. Fans use the word love also in a very shallow way. I love the Lakers. You love the Lakers? So if one of the players needed a kidney transplant, would you be willing to give up your <laughs> kidney for them? I'm thinking some of you might say yes. <laughs> but in general, I think you'd be like, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think I would do that. And they, they, they reflect that back. Those who have fans, they say the same type of thing. Like, You know, you're watching you know, this, this whole American Idol thing. They return home and they tell all their screaming fans, I love you. I love you. You love them. So when they can't pay their mortgage, are you going to help them out? You see what I'm saying? Shallow. And fans make demands. They don't take them. They don't take them. You better play better. That's what fans do. Well, beloved, Jesus never wanted to be the president of his own fan club. That's not what he was doing. In fact, he wasn't looking for fans. He wasn't. But his popularity grew and it grew with every miracle that he performed while he was on earth. Wherever he went, excited crowds quickly gathered and followed him. But on this occasion, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus made it abundantly clear that he wasn't looking for fans and that being his follower, his disciple, was altogether different than just being a fan of Christ. These two ideas, beloved, fickle fan or faithful follower, are really universes apart, worlds apart. So let's get into the text together. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. Just follow along with me as I read. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's the text we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to consider two requirements and two reasons. That's the outline that you have in your bulletin. For following Jesus so that we will know and value what it means to truly be a disciple, not a fan, but a disciple of Christ. Let me give you a little context about our story today. Last week, if you weren't here, just by way of reminder, we looked at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. What I want to do this morning is just read verses 27 through 33 of that section of text again. To help us really know what's going on right now and here in this story. So just let your eyes go up a little bit. And starting in verse 27, follow along with me as I read that section of text. And Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him. Get behind Me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's good confession that we have here, his accurate confession that Jesus was the Christ, led to this shocking announcement by Jesus about His God-appointed mission with death. With death and suffering. As the Christ Jesus had to be beloved. And we talked about this last week. He had to be. The necessity was there to be murdered and to rise again three days later. Here you have the Apostle Peter, a bold man speaking on behalf of the Twelve. He decides to rebuke Jesus for his announcement. That won't happen to you, Jesus. We won't let it. But Jesus did not allow Peter's misguided correction to stand or go unchallenged. Jesus strongly, as we just read, chastised him in front of the eleven and pointed out that Peter was focused on flawed human concerns and desires rather than on the perfect will of God. That's the context that builds up to where we are now. The truth of Jesus' words about his certain future sufferings, beloved, had serious implications for those who would call themselves His followers. Listen, if suffering was necessary, a requirement for the Master, then what would be expected of those who would follow the Master? Could it be that Jesus' disciples might have to be willing to endure Suffering too? Could it be? Fickle fans aren't really into suffering. In fact, fans usually resist or avoid what they find to be unpleasant or disagreeable. They bail. This is no longer fun. But Jesus wasn't asking anyone to be His fan. That's not what he was asking. He, he did not have a, a Jesus Facebook where he was trying to accumulate as, as many friends as he possibly could before he left the earth. How many likes do I have today? I've got a thousand fans. <laughs> he was looking, beloved, for faithful followers. Faithful followers who, if necessary, were willing to give anything and everything just to be with Jesus. So that brings me to the first of two requirements this morning that we were pulled from the text for following Jesus, for being His disciple. The first one is to say goodbye to self. Say goodbye to self. Mark 8. Verse 34, look back at the text with me. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Jesus called the crowd to Himself because He had something very important to say that He wanted everyone to hear. Everyone. In other words, this was not a private message just for the twelve That inner circle of disciples. Although, they needed to hear this too. But this was a message for all who wanted to follow Christ. Jesus began His statement with the word if. Look back at the text. His quote is if anyone. If. If means there is a condition or a stipulation or a requirement. That's what it means. Like we might say, hey, if you want to go to your friend's house, you have to clean your room first. Okay, Jezreel? Do you see what I'm saying? Or, if you want this cookie, you have to say, please. Okay, it's a condition that we put on it. You don't get this without doing this. So Jesus here is saying, listen, if anyone, anyone, would come after me, meaning any." person who desires to follow Jesus. Not just the people Jesus was talking to and not just the twelve or the inner circle of Jesus, but whoever throughout time, including today, who desires to be Jesus' disciple must be willing, according to Jesus' words, to accept and embrace the conditions or requirements for discipleship that Jesus has laid down. And Mark has recorded. Now, the first requirement, beloved, is to deny himself. Deny himself. Now, when you think of deny, when you think of that word, I want you to think of this idea. Think disown, disown, or claim no relationship to. Here, do this. Turn to the right. You're in Mark, right? Stay in Mark. Just turn to the right and turn to Mark 14. Chapter 14, it's page 850. We'll be looking at page 850. Well, turn to page 852 because we'll be looking at verses 66-72. through 72. Here you have the same idea, the same word being used that's used here in Mark, this denial. But here we see Peter, after Jesus' arrest, denying his Lord three times. I want you to get the feel for what denial is. As I said, it is to disown or claim no relationship to. Starting in verse 66, just follow me. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Remember, this is I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. That was certainly a low, low point uh, in Peter's life. What the disciple of Jesus is supposed to deny or disown is their self. Now before I explore that a little bit with you, let me tell you what it doesn't mean and what some people have maybe thought it means. It doesn't mean that that you and I as disciples of Christ are being told by Jesus that we are to deny or reject wholesome things, good things, gifts of God, that bring us enjoyment like chocolate. Okay, ladies, or guys, either way. In my house, I'm the one who loves chocolate. My wife doesn't, so it's a little strange, I know. But this is not what they're talking about. This is not a call for you to deny yourself of something so sweet and wonderful that the Lord has provided us with. Chocolate would be one example. Or a comfortable bed. Or new clothes. Or a healthy relationships. That's not what Jesus is saying. Throughout history, though, people have confused this requirement of self-denial with this word. I'll just say it to you. Maybe you've heard it before. Asceticism. Asceticism. Asceticism, beloved, is a form of discipline in which you deny yourself even good things in life as a way to somehow draw closer to God or to reach another plane of spirituality. Monks have been known throughout history to practice a form of asceticism. Buddhists practice asceticism. But monks specifically practice it. And some of the things they do is they isolate themselves from the rest of the world. So they cut themselves off from healthy relationships, believing somehow that will bring them closer to God or raise their spirituality. Sometimes they even refuse the most basic comforts like a bed and they choose instead to sleep on a hard floor. Self-denial, they think. No? Asceticism. Jesus is not asking those desiring to be His disciples to become monks. That's not what He's doing here. Garland said, one writer said this, it is not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of self itself. Let me try that again. It is not the denial of something to the self, like chocolate, like clothes, like a good relationship, but it is the denial of self itself. I have a few of these until we can get there, until we can all come together on the same page on this, because it's important. Here's another one. It is to renounce the claims of self as no longer the supreme object of regard. In other words, my self-interest, if I am to deny myself, my self-interest as a disciple of Christ no longer rule or dominate my life. My self-interest no longer rule or dominate or control or act as overlord or master in my life. Being a disciple of Jesus means that my life can no longer be, beloved, all about me or my goals or my ambitions or my desires or my hopes or my dreams or my wants. It it cannot be according to what Christ is saying. Not according to what I'm saying. According to what the Word of God has recorded. Therefore, it would be out of character for a disciple of Jesus to say something like this. It is my life and I will live it as I please and nobody and no one can tell me what to do with it. That wouldn't fit for a disciple of Christ. I answer to me, myself, and I. Do you know what that is? We call that the unholy trinity. (laughs) Me, myself, and I. I answer to no one else. For the one who follows Jesus' beloved self must be removed from the throne of the heart and God must be allowed to take His rightful place. That's what we're saying. Self must be removed and God must be allowed to take His rightful place as king, as ruler, as authority. Disciples of Jesus must, we must, Say goodbye to self. You know why? Because God refuses to share his throne or his rule with anyone or anything. You remember those old Western shows? Maybe not. I hope you do. But here in those, they would always have this scene where the two big dudes would come in and. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. You know, something like that. And then they would go out in the middle of the town and try to kill each other with their guns. Your heart is not big enough for self to rule and God to rule. One must be supreme. So Jesus is saying, you need to kick self out. You need to kick him out. He has no business being in your heart. Only God should belong there. One writer says it this way, to deny oneself means to cease to make self the object of one's life in actions. This involves fundamental reorientation of the principle of life. God, not self, must be at the center of life. God, not self. Another one put it this way, the denial of self is turning away from the idolatry, ooh, that's a strong word, the idolatry of self-centeredness and every attempt to orient one's life by the demands of self-interest. So in other words, the writer is saying, there is to be no more self-worship. Believe it or not, the universe does not revolve around you or me. Have you ever seen that? Have you I mean, There are illustrations of that every day where people, whether they know it or not, are illustrating the idea that the universe does revolve around them. Like when you're walking through Disneyland and it's very packed. Do you know what I'm saying? The crowds and a mom decides that she's going to stop right there in the middle of the crowd and deal with her child for a period of time. And it doesn't matter if she's created an incredible mess. In, it doesn't matter. You will go around me. right? People drive like that all the time. Road rage is an example of elevating self to the highest level. Do you not know that this freeway belongs to me? And you have invaded my space. How dare you ask to get in front of me and make me three seconds later than I would have been. That is an example of this, this self-worship. Divorce, to some degree, beloved, in many situations, is an example of elevating self. My needs are not being met. I'm out of here. It's not always the case, but often it is. It's all around us. I like what this writer says. He says, To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only Him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is He leads the way. Keep close to Him. You you no longer see what a difficult road it is because self does not consume you any longer. Only Christ consumes you. Wow. That's a that's a big requirement. Being a disciple, beloved, is is of Jesus is is definitely not like Burger King's marketing strategy. Do you have that pick? Right. I found this. This is an old one. This is how Burger King markets to its people. Have it your way. You have the right to have what you want. Exactly when you want it. Of course you do. Of course you do. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special and tomorrow's and the day after that. And well, you get the drift. Yes, that's right. We may be the king, but you, my friend, are the almighty ruler. (laughs) <laughs> That's a good marketing strategy for burgers. Uh, but sadly, some people have bought into that when it comes to Jesus Christ. Christianity. Christianity is not burger King. Second. second requirement: surrender your will to God. And calling the crowd to him, look back at the text with me. Sorry, Mark chapter eight, verse 34. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, we've looked at that, and take up his cross and follow Me. Now, beloved, this this will be a fun one because the original meaning of Jesus' words here, this take up your cross and follow Me, they have morphed. They have changed over time. They have. We'll talk about that. To the original audience, though, relating discipleship. Remember, this is all, have to, this all has to do with being a disciple of Christ, right? Relating discipleship in any way, on any level, to the cross would have been offensive and appalling. You, you, what did you just, what did you say? To follow you, I have to take up my cross? We don't, today, we don't necessarily have that reaction because we have, we have kind of watered down what take, the cross, take up the cross means. Beloved, the idea of someone taking up their cross, it was not unknown to the Jews who Jesus was speaking to. Because at the time, they were forced to live under Rome's authority, which included the judicial use of the cross. In other words, it was a way that they punished people. It was a method of execution used by the Roman Empire for the worst of criminals, for the lowest levels, usually reserved for slaves, foreigners. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, they could not crucify you. It was a shameful, cruel, and horrific way to end someone's life this idea of take up the cross, the condemned criminal would be forced, beloved, to, to pick up and carry part of his cross, the, the cross beam. And then he would be paraded through the streets by the Roman soldiers so that all could see what happens to those who dare Raise their hand against the Roman authorities. The rebellious criminal who was disobedient to the laws of Rome was now forced to publicly display his submission and obedience to Rome by bearing his cross or taking up his cross on the way to his death. When someone took up their cross, beloved, remember this is what Jesus is asking His disciples to do. When someone took up their cross, there was no turning back. There was no turning back. The reality of their death would rush over them with each and every step they would make on that dirt road. And it was clear. It was clear to them and it was clear to everyone else that their own will no longer determine the path Of their lives. So, there, when we look at or when we consider take up one's cross, it is simply this it was a public demonstration of one's complete submission to the authority against which he had previously rebelled. Taking up the cross was not submitting to taking out the trash, but it was full surrender. To a death march. Wow. Now, as I said before, the idea of taking up your cross, it it has been watered down from its original meaning. People now relate cross-bearing to enduring a, dif, uh, a difficulty in their life, uh, a tough boss, um, a poor, poor health. My wife has bad knees, so... So if she thought this way, she would say, my bad knees are just the cross I have to bear. Just as Jesus said, that's what you have to do as his disciple. That's what people say. That's what some people think. Maybe financial problems. My house is upside down, 200,000. It is the cross I just have to bear. Maybe strained relationships. Husband wife, you name it. There's strained relationships in every house, in every family, all over the place. And we might say, hey, that's the cross I just have to bear. Well, let me just make a couple of comments. Regarding cross-bearing, one writer says, the concept of cross-bearing should never be cheapened by applying it to enduring some irritation or even a major burden in life. Another writer says, it does not refer to bearing patiently the aches and pains of life. Think through this with me a moment, beloved. Think with me, logically. Everyone, everyone in the world, including those who don't follow Christ, know and experience the pains and problems associated with living in a fallen world filled with sinners. Do they not? Everyone. You don't have to be a Christian to have bad health or an upside-down home or poor relationships or a jerky boss or just one thing after another. Everyone has burdens, heavy burdens for some, and problems and difficulties in life. So if that's what taking up the cross means, does that mean they are all taking up the cross as Jesus has required for His disciples? Is that what we should conclude? Well, that doesn't make sense. That would be ripping the verse out of its context and making it mean something that, that Jesus never intended for it to mean. Additionally, beloved, it's written in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 23, which is another gospel presentation of this same scenario where Christ says this, gives these requirements for discipleship. And there it says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Okay, here's another requirement. Take it up daily and follow me. So would that mean that if I was in a season of life where things were going fairly well, so I finally got equity in my home, I got some relationships restored, my wife got that surgery on her knee, things were going pretty good, no real problems to speak of, then according to Luke, if that's my understanding of what it means to bear the cross... I would need to go look for or acquire some problem or difficulty to bring into my life in order to daily bear my cross. Is that what it means? Beyond that, if cross-bearing is a requirement, and it is, of discipleship, and it is simply a reference to the common sufferings of this life, like health problems or such, then wouldn't it be wrong to pray that God might provide a remedy for that problem? i mean if if my wife's bad I hate to keep referring to you, sweetie, but you're right there and I see you if my wife's bad knees are her cross to bear, and being a disciple is there's a requirement that she bear that cross, then wouldn't I be going against God's will by praying that someday she might have her knees healed by a surgery or such? Yeah, it's not that beloved. it It doesn't mean those things, but we've we've brought it down to such a level over two thousand years that it doesn't have the punch that it used to have, and now it just means any difficulty in life. That's the cross I'm bearing. That's just not the case. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is not a reference to putting up with or enduring the problems of life, but rather it is a continual daily act of surrendering your will entirely to God with the knowledge that doing so may result in the loss of your life. But knowing the futility and hopelessness of living for self, you surrender your will and life to God regardless of the cost or consequences. Did you get that? You know what, beloved? I'm going to talk about this in a second. These are heavy. These are almost, it seems, too heavy. But hold that thought. Hold that thought. I just want to make sure we understand what it is that's being required of those who desire to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We've got to get that part right first. We can talk about how we're going to do it In a moment. Here's another writer. This is what he says. Just to kind of sum it all up. Jesus' submission to God's will is the proper response to God's claims over self's claims. Right? Jesus entirely and completely surrendered His will to the Father's. Fulfilled it perfectly. Did He not? For Him it meant death on the cross. That's what it meant for Him. Those who follow Him must take up their, not His, their cross. Meaning whatever comes to them in God's will as a follower of Jesus. This does not mean suffering as He did, necessarily. Or or being crucified as He was. And, And what I mean by that is we will never suffer as He did. He suffered the wrath of His Father for the sins of His people. We will never suffer like that. And it does not mean that every disciple of Jesus Christ needs to go crucify himself, literally. Nor does it mean patiently bearing life's troubles. Rather, it is obedience to God's will as revealed in His Word, accepting the consequences without reservations for Jesus' sake and for the Gospel. For some, beloved, this includes physical suffering and death as history has repeatedly demonstrated, as history repeats itself right now. We are so far removed from persecution and suffering, and I thank God that we are. I praise God we have freedom in this country. But that is not the case around the world. Beloved in it probably won't remain the case for us either. Why in the world would anyone say goodbye to self, goodbye, adios, you don't belong here anymore, and then surrender their will to God completely, knowing that the consequences of of those type of actions could bring them shame, suffering, and possibly death? Why? Why would you do that, Jason? Why would I do that? That just does not sound like a good deal. Well, Jesus gives us two reasons why. Yeah, these demands are radical. These requirements are over the top. But let me tell you this is why you must do this. And that brings us to the first reason the prophet of eternal life. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 8, verse 35. He just told him the requirements deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The beginning of verse 35 begins with the word for. You see that there in the text? For. It means what follows is an explanation or reason. You might also say the word because. for an explanation or reason as to why anybody anybody would would deny themselves and take up their cross as Jesus has instructed them to do. He begins with a statement, beloved, as he lays this out, that appears on the surface to be a contradiction, really, when you read it. He says, "If if I seek to save or preserve my life, I will end up losing it. Okay, But if I lose my life for Jesus, then somehow I will preserve or keep it. Huh? So the way to make sense of this is we have to take into consideration the context that we've already been talking about this morning. Jesus is seeking a commitment from those who desire to be His disciple. It is a commitment that pursues Christ regardless of personal cost rejecting self-interest and fully surrendering to God's will for your life. Even if it were to result in death. Even to that extreme. Also, it's helpful to know that the Greek word that's translated life in verse 35, whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever tries to save his life, that word is translated, it's the same exact word that's translated soul in verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? The Greek word that Mark used there can refer to both our temporary physical life here on earth and one's true self, their eternal soul. Their eternal soul. So here, how we put this all together now, Jesus is communicating this, that if you or me or anyone refuse to follow Him, Choosing instead to live according to our own self-interest. I'm not getting rid of self. I like self, and I want to keep self on the throne. It's been working for me. I'm going to keep that going. So we, we don't say goodbye to self. And we refuse to surrender our wills to God, hoping that if we do that, we will avoid any persecution or death or shame, and somehow preserve our temporary life on this earth. If we do that, Jesus is saying you actually will lose your life. You will lose your soul to eternal ruin. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. However, if you willingly surrender your temporary life, literally if necessary, your will may be your life, by denying yourself and taking up the cross for Christ and the Gospel, then in the end you will have a life that really matters. Eternal life. That's what he's saying. This is the reason he's giving. Here, let me read to you how one author states this. He says, to lose one's life is to lose physical existence. We know that. But to lose one's soul has eternal consequences. The irony of verse 35 is that this one thing cannot be saved by preserving it, that is your life, your soul, but only by forsaking it in favor of following Jesus. The one for whom the way of Jesus is more important than His own existence will secure His eternal being. But the one whose existence is more important than Jesus will lose both Jesus and His existence. Wow. So what rational person would say, it seems like a better deal for me to trade eternal life for temporary preservation? Who would do that? The only reason you would do it, beloved, is because you don't believe it. It's the only reason I would do it. It's the only reason you would do it. It's the only reason anybody does it. Because logically, it just doesn't make sense. Jesus is, this is a, you sold me, Jesus. I, this is, how can I pass that up? It doesn't, of course, give you my life so that I might have life. Why would I seek to preserve my life? So the only reason people don't do this is they just flat out don't believe it. They don't. And then he goes on, he supports this point by asking two questions. They're called rhetorical questions. And that just means that, the answer is already anticipated. That's all that means. So he's, he's, he's expecting a certain answer. He's not asking the question to gain knowledge. Look at verse 36. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Expected answer? Nothing. That's, that's what he's expecting them to come away with. He's trying to draw them out to help them understand his point. In the business world, beloved... The word profit is very important. It is very important. Businesses live and die by profit. People start a business, not just because they want to start a business, but with the intent of making a profit. And a profit is what is left over. It is the benefit after you take away all the cost. So here's what I had. I subtract all the cost. What's left is the profit, my benefit. Jesus said, let's assume for a moment, let's just assume, it's impossible, let's assume that a man in his self-serving pursuits could gain all the treasures of the world. All of them. But in the process, he loses his soul. He he forfeits eternal life with God. Has that man really gained anything? Anything. When it's all said and done, does he have a prophet? Was there any value, any at all, in not following Jesus? That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. The second question is like the first, verse 37 For what can a man give in return for his soul? Expected answer, nothing. Nothing, beloved. He may have all the possessions this world can offer, but in the end, he will not be able to trade even one of them or all of them in exchange for eternal life. His only hope, my only hope, and your only hope, the world's only hope, is to abandon self, take up the cross, and follow Christ. Forsaking my own life in order to save it. In the end, that's Christianity. That's Christianity. Jesus Christ is an all-or-nothing proposition, beloved. He's an all-or-nothing. It's not, you know 50 percent Jesus and 50 percent me in the world. and that's just not how he's arranged it. As his disciple, though, your profit in the end is immeasurable. You can't even put a price on it. No accountant can figure it out. But refusing to follow him leaves a person bankrupt, actually, in the end. Left with nothing of any real value or substance. And so the second reason Jesus gives, if that's not enough, is that not enough? But just in case it isn't, he gives the promise of judgment, the promise of judgment, and I know in our day and age, people are—you know—they've come out of Christianity where people are just preaching hellfire and brimstone, screaming at you, and, and people—they re, don't react well to that, and they're, they just—they hear the word judgment, they're like, "Oh, here we go again, judgment, judgment." Well, I don't know if. All the approaches over the ages have been good or healthy or wholesome or even godly in the way that people communicate the gospel to one another, the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. But certainly, in all of that, to leave out the judgment would be not to tell you what the Bible actually says, it would be to avoid it altogether. So I think there's a right way to do that. Well, here's how Jesus did it He's going to tell his guys, He's going to tell the crowd. Listen, you want life, give up your life and I will give you life. Follow Me. But if you don't, if you're too afraid of what might come because self consumes you, if you're afraid of walking with Me because you might experience the same shame I will experience, if you're afraid because of the persecution that might come your way to associate with Me, if you're afraid even that I just told you I was going to my death, that somehow you might get caught up in all that, Let me just tell you something. He says in Mark 8, look back at the text, verse 38. Here he says again, For whoever, for whoever, anybody is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. And adulterous there doesn't mean they were committing or messing around their spouses, but they were messing around on God. They were unfaithful to God. That's what he means. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of Him will the Son of Man, that's a reference to Jesus, also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Those are, um, just be honest, those are very heavy words. Jesus' second reason for becoming a self-denying, cross-bearing follower of His is very, is very sobering. Jesus warns that there is a day of reckoning coming. It wasn't yesterday, as some have said, wrongly said. But there is a judgment day coming, beloved. There is. Jesus warns that it's coming and He says all those who refuse the requirements or demands of discipleship, instead, choosing what they believe will be an easier and more satisfying way on the earth will find no comfort in what Jesus promises to be their future. There's no comfort in these words at all. Those who put self first and are willing to submit their lives to God, being ashamed of Jesus and His teaching, His words, what He has said. Listen, we have pastors now that won't even say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life to the Father. They're ashamed to say it because of the scorn that it brings them. How dare you say that? There must be other ways to God. Well, okay, then I won't say it. If you are ashamed of Jesus and His teaching, you will experience the Lord's shame of them when He returns in His divine glory with the holy angels to judge the world for how they responded to Christ. One writer puts it this way, the one who now disowns him in shame shall then be disowned in shame. Hmm. Beloved, the, the Bible says in Romans 10.11, this is a good verse, it says, the Scriptures say, everyone, quoting Isaiah, everyone who believes in Him, that is Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. They will not experience that shame on that day. But I'll talk about that in a second. This whole idea of belief. Right now, let me conclude by saying, and I want to be clear here, that Jesus is not suggesting that you and I or me, I can earn my way into heaven by being a good disciple who practices self-denial and is characterized by taking up my cross on a daily basis. That's not what He's saying, but He's He's making it very clear what following Jesus should actually look like. And why living for him as he has defined it, not how I have defined it, beloved, not how you have defined it. If if he's the master and I'm his follower, who gets to define what it looks like to follow him? Me? Well, if I'm a fan, it does, because I make demands, I don't take them but if I'm a faithful follower, He has to find it. It's the only logical, rational, sensible, and wise choice for anyone to make. Listen, the twelve failed, guys. As we go through the book of Mark, you've already seen, you're going to see more of it. They will continue to fail repeatedly to live up to Jesus' requirements of being His disciple. But let me tell you something. After they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, they became living examples of what it means to say goodbye to self and surrender your will to God, giving even their lives, beloved, for the sake of Jesus and the Gospel boldly, not backing away, but boldly proclaiming Jesus and His words to a hostile world and audience. At the risk of their very lives, they did this. They were not ashamed of their Lord and Savior and He will not be ashamed of them on that day. Okay. Well, that was the disciples, you know. What about us? Well, here's what I want to say to us. Within Christianity today, within the, the realm of, of churches and those who call themselves Christians, there has developed a false distinction between a believer or a Christian and a disciple. Okay, now remember I read that passage where the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will be put to shame. Well, the thinking goes something like this, and it's erroneous, it's wrong that you can become a christian and be saved but that doesn't necessarily mean you will or have to follow christ you might decide to do that later on in life or you may not your choice so let me let me just be clear that that thinking does not come from the bible it doesn't beloved Jesus instructions to his disciples before he ascended to the Father were this, Matthew 28:19, maybe you've heard it, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe to do all that I have commanded you. You know what the disciples' mission was? You know what our mission is as disciples of Christ? It is to go and make, what do you think? disciples, yes, yes to make disciples, not Christians. Stay with me. Not Christians or even believers per se in the way that we have now defined it, but faithful followers of Christ. Just as James has said, some of you are in our James study in the growth groups. James says, What? You guys must be doers of the word, faithful followers, not hearers only, hearing what you're supposed to do but paying no attention to it, deceiving yourselves. You think you're a Christian? Do you know what that means? It, it has to mean something. And Jesus has defined in Mark what it means. During the early days of the church, those who believed in Christ, beloved, were identified as disciples. You can see it in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. That's, how they, that's what they were called. The disciples gathered. The disciples were instructed. It wasn't until later that they also became known as Christians. But even their identity there was first and foremost disciples. Listen to the text, Acts 11.26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. See, we've kind of removed disciple from Christian. And that was a mistake. I think it is good to be reminded, for me to be reminded, that if you refer to yourself as a Christian, it means, you know what it means? It means you are identifying yourself as a disciple of Christ. And if you are His disciple, then Jesus has clearly defined for us what it means for your life and what it means for my life. Now, none of us None of us can live up to the requirements of discipleship in our own strength. That would be ridiculous. But we can live up to those requirements to some degree by the power and grace of God through the Holy Spirit that He has given to those who have fully trusted in His salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we can progress in these things. And we must. We must. We must say goodbye to self and we must surrender our will entirely to God as His followers. If we don't, beloved, if we don't, or we won't, and sometimes that's the case, then we need to seriously ask why we would identify ourselves as Christians at all. Unless we have redefined what the term really means. My concern is that there are many fickle fans of Jesus. Many. And I'll I'll be honest with you. Not like I haven't been... You know, I hate that statement. Every time I use it, I always say, why did you use that? Like, I haven't been honest with you for the last 45 minutes. But now I'm going to be honest with you. (laughs) Let me just tell you something that's on my heart. I think this is part of the problem, why people look at the church and they go... I don't want anything to do with that. Because there are a lot of fickle fans in the church. They've never really committed their life to Christ. They don't even know what it means to really be a Christian. So their life's not changing in any way. They don't even have the power of the Spirit residing inside of them. And so what the world sees that is called Christian is not really Christian at all. It doesn't mean that Christians don't mess up and mess up bad. They do. But, There's also victories in their life. There's progression towards godliness through the work of the Spirit and being willing to obey what the Word of God has told us. You want to be my disciple? Say goodbye to self. Disown Him. You don't know Him any longer. Walk away from Him and elevate God to the throne of your heart. Be willing to follow Him no matter what the cost or consequences. You think I can do that on my own? No way! I'm going to have to rely on the power of the Spirit and the work of the cross in my life every moment of every day to have any hope of accomplishing anything even close to that. If you are a follower of Christ, beloved, then my prayer is that by the power of the Spirit that God has given to those who have believed, that you and I will live according to Jesus' life-changing words recorded here in Mark chapter 8, Verse 34, and we will begin and continue to say goodbye to self and surrender our wills to God as those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.